Have you ever been hiking with kids? If it is, if you have, I, I think you know how it goes, right? Several years ago, we were up in the North Cascade Mountains in Washington. It was just me, Emma, and Bree. And we're on this trail, and I had this, like, we had an incline. We were going up to this overlook to be able to see everything below. And it was several miles long. And after a little while, you know, Bree, her little legs and everything, they were just starting to get tired. And she was getting a little cranky and saying, Dad, how much longer do we got? You know, do we really have to keep going? Can we turn around? But I know what's ahead, right? I, I know. I've read about the trail. I know that there's more to see. I mean, for her, it's like, okay, I've seen enough evergreen trees. After a while, they all start to look the same. But I know there's more to see. I know there's more. So I'm trying to coax her. Hey, Bree, it's going to get better. We're going to get there. Like, you can do it. And that worked for a little bit. But, you know, she's just like, come on, Dad. Like, this is enough. And so I did. I think what any parent would do, I just bribed her. You know, I just told her, hey, Bree, if you go a little further, I'll give you a piece of candy. You know, you go a little further than that, I'll give you another piece of candy, you know, come on. And so we just coax her until we make it to the top, until we get to the overview, and then we're able to look out and we're able to see like Lake Diablo down below and these bluish green waters, and it was amazing. In fact, I think I've got a picture for you guys. There it is. So, so we get there and we get to see this, and it's one of those where like that looks cool, but I'm telling you, it's like we just stepped into a postcard. But the whole trail was just evergreen tree, evergreen tree, evergreen tree. And there was this bigger reality that was out there. But it's like, are we ever going to get there? But think, thankfully, we did. And we got there, and we saw it, and it was amazing. But you know what? Other, beyond just seeing it, something else happened. And that was once Bree made it to the top, all of a sudden, she's got this renewed energy. And she's running around at the top, you know, the overlook, and she's checking out this view and checking out this view, and she's got all this energy now, so much so that when we turned around to walk down, she wasn't complaining. She wasn't, she wasn't complaining anymore, like, Dad, how long is this trail going to take? When are we going to get to the bottom? That wasn't it at all. Instead, we're talking about what we just saw and what we just experienced. We were even talking about the hike that we were going to do tomorrow, because she's excited. She got the vision. She got to see it, and it's energizing right? It's exciting. We all have experiences in life like that, don't we? Where, where there's, you know, we just know that there's got to be more than this, that this can't be it. It can't just be evergreen tree after evergreen tree after evergreen tree. There's got to be more. Oftentimes that kind of nagging feeling, that kind of gut reaction, that even takes place in the church, you know, because we know that there's this God of eternity and, and that he has the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who stepped down. He's co-eternal with the Father. And he steps down out of heaven onto earth, taking on flesh and blood and all the limitations of humanity. That Jesus did that. And that he grew up and he became the sinless Savior who rescued us from certain death. And he does this and we know it. And then there's this disconnect that sometimes happens because the church says, hey, come here, sit in a pew, listen to a good message, enjoy the worship time together, and maybe you can find a ministry at the church that, you know, you enjoy and you can plug in, you join into what we're doing. And we almost feel sometimes like, is this really it? Is this all there is to being a Christian? Didn't God make us for more than this? That's the whole point of Ephesians. 
That that's what Paul is writing about in this book. That God has designed his church for more. So during the course of this next year, our theme is Made for More. And we're going through the book of Ephesians and just writing how Paul designed his church to live and be in this world. And so during the course of this study, we've identified six shifts that are crucial for the health of the church. Any church, but crucial for the health of the church. And they are shifting, shifting from more effort to more Jesus, from more volunteers to more masterpieces, from more guilt to more love, from more hierarchy to more missionaries, from more programs to more mission fields, and from more strategy to more surrender. This letter, Paul unpacks all of this to get his church on track to being the church that God has made us to be. And so this morning, we're jumping right in. I'm so excited for this year, guys. We're jumping right in. Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 6. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. And to set the book of Ephesians up for you, you need to know, Paul, this is one of Paul's prison epistles, okay? He wrote this while he was imprisoned. And he wrote it, most scholars believe that he didn't write it just to one local church, the church in Ephesus, but that it was a circular letter. It was designed to be distributed to all the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, not, not just to this one church in Ephesus, but to all the churches in the area, the churches that you read about in Revelation. And so, you know, we kind of get some clues of that. You know, most of our, our oldest and best manuscripts, the little phrase in verse 2, in Ephesus, is not there. It's thought that it was probably added later as the courier kind of took the letter to the Ephesian church that he added that little phrase in Ephesus to the saints in Ephesus just to kind of personalize it for them. But it was written to all local churches for every church that they would know how God designed his church to live and to be and to operate. Even more, Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, he says, hey, I want you to take this letter. After you've read the letter to the Colossians, I want you to take it over to Laodicea so that the Laodiceans can read the letter. And by the way, when you're there taking the letter over to the Laodiceans, I want you to get the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans so you can read that one. Well, what is the letter to the Laodiceans, right? We don't have any book of our Bible called Laodiceans. It's likely this letter, the letter to the Ephesians. It was a circular letter, even more, Paul ends this letter in chapter 6 by saying, in effect, to all the saints, to all the Christians everywhere, grace to you. It's written to all local churches so all believers everywhere can know how God designed his church for more. So let's go ahead and begin. Ephesians 1, 1 to 6 reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's stop right there. One of the things, when you, when you read an epistle, oftentimes, one of the letters in the New Testament, 
you read the beginning so fast, don't you? Like the introduction stuff. It's like, okay, I just want to get to the meat. I want to get to the juicy stuff, to the really important things. If you do that in Ephesians, you miss some really big clues that Paul gives right at the outset, some clues that he does not want you to miss. And the first thing is that Paul says that he is an apostle called by the will of God. That's kind of an interesting way to introduce yourself, you know, that I am here called by the will of God as an apostle. In other letters, when Paul introduces himself, he goes into a lot more detail. He starts talking about how Jesus rescued him and his elite training under Gamaliel and, and, and now his purpose for writing and all that stuff. In Ephesians, he just wants you to know this one credential, that he is an apostle called by the will of God. And on that basis, and on that basis alone, he says, that's all you need to know to listen to me. Once you know this, you ought to listen to me. I am called by the will of God as an apostle. An apostle is an eyewitness, at that time an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, who then goes and takes the good news of Jesus to new territory, right? To places it hadn't been before. He is a messenger of God. And that's what he's saying. He's, and it's not my own doing. I didn't just choose to be this messenger. I didn't just choose to be an apostle. God called me that. And he says, I'm writing to the saints, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that term saint, it's fallen on hard times in our culture, hasn't it? I mean, if somebody calls you a saint today, you kind of know what they mean. You kind of shudder away from it a little bit. Don't, don't call me a saint. Why? We know ourselves. I'm, I'm no saint, right? Because we know that the person who's saying like, oh, are you a saint? It's, it's, it's like they're saying, are you, are you perfect? That, that you're not like the rest of us ordinary humans. You know, there, there's something different about you, set apart. You're, you're this image of perfection that we want to like plaster and bronze and just, well, I'll, you know, they're a saint. I can't get, can't too, get too close. I got to watch my P's and Q's around them because, you know, they're, they're holy. But that's not it at all. But when, when Paul says saints and then he writes in Ephesians, you know what he's writing to them about? He's writing to the saints about how to have good marriages. He's writing to the saints about how to parent their kids. He's writing to, their, to the saints about pressing in during hard times, not just throwing in the towel. He, he's writing to the saints about this spiritual battle, that, 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 this good fight of the faith that they must have. See, these saints had issues. They had struggles. It's not like they were perfect parents, had perfect marriages, and everything was great. No, Paul wouldn't need to write all that if that was the case. He's writing to saints who are imperfect. Saint does not apply in perfection. The one characteristic of saint that Paul says here is that they are faithful. That a saint is faithful. There's, other than that, there's nothing else special about them. They have the same issues, same struggles, same problems that everybody else does. What it means to be a saint is to know that I have been rescued by God, now set up part for God so that when I have issues, when I have struggles, when I have problems, I view them through a different view because I know that God can reach into those issues. He can reach into those struggles, those problems, and he can redeem them for his glory so that when I have struggles, when I mess up, when I just royally blow it, I don't throw in the towel, but I continue to be faithful. I get up again and say, God, help me today to be faithful. When you throw in the towel and you say, I'm not a Christian anymore, that's apostasy, 
right? And we've seen it recently um, with some uh, well-known figures in the Christian world, Joshua Harris, uh, namely. But a, a saint is one who continues to be faithful, who says, I'm not throwing in the towel even when I blow it, even if I don't have it all right. I'm being faithful. I'm not quitting. A saint doesn't quit. And so Paul, he gives this short address, and then, he, and, then he, and then he gets into his letter, to the meat of it. And his first word is blessed or praise. And it's what Randy was just talking about, that praise should be forever on our lips. But if I'm Paul, I don't know that that would have been my first word, you know. I mean, you just think about it. Paul didn't write this from, like, the comfort of an office. He, he didn't write this letter from the quiet of a library, he wrote it from a dungeon of a Roman-controlled prison, chained to a guard, and this is what he writes, and his first word is praise. If it were me, I think my first word might have been like, hey, can you send for a good defense lawyer? You know, I'm innocent of these charges, I'm not guilty of everything they're saying, would you like to contribute to my legal defense fund? I think I would have written a lot of things before I wrote praise, but not if you're Paul. Not if you understand what was really going on. Not if you have the bigger picture of reality. You know, I tell you all the time that right thinking produces right living. You see it in Paul's letters, just the way he organizes all the epistles. You read any one of his letters, and he always starts with, and he does this in Ephesians, he starts with how to think. He, he starts with biblical Truth, profound doctrinal truth, these spiritual practices that God wants us to know. And then after we know those, after he writes on that, then he always moves into how you live it out. How that truth is then applied practically. The working out of those principles and the trenches and then the gutters of life. That's how Paul always constructs his letters. Right thinking then produces right living. And now Paul's living it out. I mean, here's Paul. He's down in the trenches, in the gutters of life, and he's living what he knows to be true. He, he, he sees the broader reality. What he knows to be true is this, that the Father, God the Father, has blessed the saints, the imperfect yet faithful, never-quitting Christians, those he has set apart. He has blessed us. God the Father has blessed us in Christ. And that's Paul's starting point. I've been blessed by God in Christ. Here's our problem. That's not often our starting point, is it? We don't often start there. See, all too often, our thinking doesn't begin with God and what he's doing. It begins with us. It begins with our circumstances. It begins with what's going on in our life, and that is only a partial view of reality. That is only a slice of the bigger picture. And we miss the span of what our relationship with God in this world means. And so we end up with this distorted view of God and what he's doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway. Because we just see our circumstance. We see us. And the only way to view truth, to understand truth, to get the big picture of reality is to start with God. Because only he's big enough to understand all truth. He, he's the only one who sees the full picture. He's the only one who gets the full span of reality. 
But we forget that. And when we do, we end up with a little Jesus. We end up with a Jesus that we just kind of pull out when we're at our wit's end and say, oh, I don't know what to do now. Jesus, can you just kind of step in and help me? Jesus, I'm at the end of my rope. Can you, can you just kind of do something here? Instead, what do we do at the beginning? We try harder and harder and harder and harder in hopes that maybe life can get better and better and better and better. When what we really need, what we really, really need is not more effort, but more Jesus, a bigger Jesus. Why? Because God has given us every spiritual blessing where? In Christ. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing comes to us in Christ. You can't get them any other way. And Paul, he talks about some of these lessons in Ephesians 1. He goes right through. He just names some of the blessings. He says the blessing of being chosen by God before the foundation of the universe to be his children. He talks about that blessing in verse 4. To be members of the family of God and partakers of his divine nature, verses 5 and 6. Having all of our guilt removed and in its place, God gives wisdom, verses 7 and 8. The blessing of having unfettered access to the God of the universe and knowledge of the future plans that he has, that he's working out, verses 9 and 10. He's given us a purpose for life, a reason for being, so that he might receive praise and glory, verses 11 and 12. He's given us truth. He's given us the straight scoop on reality, verse 13. And all of this brings joy to life. It makes life worth living. He details all these blessings right here at the beginning of Ephesians. He's just kind of whetting our appetite with all that Christ has given us. That in Christ, we have all of these blessings right now, but we miss it. We forget it. Why? Because we have a little Jesus. We fail to acknowledge the centrality of Jesus in every detail of our life. And we forget that every spiritual blessing, they're already ours, but there's no other way to get it except in Christ. And if I miss Jesus, if my Jesus is small, I miss the blessing that he's already given. Yeah, and we have this theology, it's Benjamin Franklin heresy, that God helps those who help themselves. No, no, God blesses those who are in Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. And the place, the location of this blessing, it happens to us because we are in Christ and it is in the heavenly realms. And that almost makes us back up and scratch our head a little bit and say, okay, where's the heavenly realms exactly? Isn't that like heaven, like kind of far out? He's just kind of waiting there. He's got them safely secured for us in heaven. No, no, no. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. See, Paul is talking about a present experience of these blessings right now. And so we, we are involved in the heavenly realms right now. When Paul uses this phrase, heavenly places, heavenly realms, he does it numerous times in Ephesians, some of his other letters. He's talking about this realm of invisible, unseen reality that is true right now. It's true about life in our universe right now, but things that we cannot see, cannot touch, but at the same time, intensely real. That's why Paul, in another letter, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The blessings that God gives, the spiritual blessings that he has given us right now, they last forever. Our circumstances that we oftentimes focus on, they're momentary, but they consume us. 
because we focus on the wrong things. We focus on ourselves. See, we need a bigger Jesus. And these blessings, they're never going away. There's a powerful example of the heavenly places. It's in uh, the Old Testament in, in 2 Kings 6, and it's uh, related to, the, to Elisha. And Elisha, he, he and his servant, they're there, and the, the Syrian armies are about ready to attack, coming against us, and coming against them. And, th- and this is what's written, 2 Kings 6. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots on fire all around Elisha. If only we could see the horses and chariots of fire that God has arrayed about us. The the angels that he has put in place over our circumstances. If only we could see that. See, the real spiritual battle is taking place right here in the invisible, unseen world around us. It's the heavenly realms. It's not some mystical, far-off, outer space place, but it's right here. And we need more Jesus to open our eyes to understand this unseen world and what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway, the the, the straight scoop of this bigger reality so that our circumstances would grow smaller and Jesus would grow bigger. See, Paul's starting point is God, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, it's already been accomplished. It's, it's not a promise yet to be fulfilled. It is a present reality, present gifts to be grasped right now. And it's not based on human effort. God's not looking and saying, okay, if you work harder, I'll give you some more blessings. If you work hard, I'll just coax you to the top like I did with Bree. Come on, do a little more. I'll give you another treat. It's not like that. He says, I've given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places now. They're at your disposal now. It's finished reality. You see, all the progress that you'll ever make in your spiritual life is coming to understand and live truth that is already true. It's not truth that will one day be true in the future. It's already true now. It's already available to us in Christ now. We just need more Jesus. We must become smaller. Jesus must become bigger. Then Paul goes back and he details how we got in Christ in the first place. right? As he just praises. Paul begins this letter with this symphony of praise to the triune God. And he goes back and he says where that process started. And he said at some point in eternity past, before the universe was and there was just expanse, that God was thinking... I'm going to make humans one day, and I'm going to choose them. I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you, and you're going to be a part of my family. You're going to be a part of my kingdom. And so right there at the beginning of Ephesians is this this proclamation of the doctrine of election and predestination right here. And, you know, we get sometimes uncomfortable with that. Scholars have written big, fat books and volumes on 
predestination and man's free will and all this kind of stuff. To help you understand it a little bit, you just got to get into a gym, you know, and play a little basketball. Because you know how it works in a gym when you're playing basketball? I used to play basketball when I was younger, and I thought I was okay, and I thought I was pretty good. I could hang with a lot of my friends, beat most of them. But that was kind of in a small pond, you know? But as you get better, you start playing with other guys, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm not so, such hot stuff after all. You get in a bigger lake, and you, and then you play with guys who can just eat your lunch, right? And so one of those guys was Mike Vallott. And Mike, whatever team Mike was on, that team was going to win because Mike was just that good. I mean, he could blow by anybody on the court. He could dribble. He could pass. He could shoot. He could defend. He could do it all. And you just knew, okay, Mike, his team is going to win. And the best players, they were always the captains, you know? They got to choose their team. And the way it always worked was Mike was the captain, and there's the rest of us. You know, we're the also-rans because we're, we're not all that good. We're just kind of lousy. And I'm always hoping Mike's going to pick me because I know if Mike picks me, I win because he's going to win. His team doesn't lose. I know if Mike picks me, I win. And so then when he picks me, I walk over and I stand behind my captain. Now, in those 10 steps, my basketball ability did not get any better. I did not all of a sudden become an all-star, right? I'm just as lousy as I was before. The thing that happened was now I'm standing behind my captain who chose me. And I know that Mike is going to win. And because Mike is going to win, now I'm going to win. And so now I play with this new sense of confidence that I didn't have before. And with Mike on my team, what happens? Mike sets me up for shots that I would not have gotten on my own, right? Because I could, I could never get in that place and dribble around those guys, but Mike can. And he's setting me up, and I'm, I'm shooting shots that I wouldn't have got on, on my own. And I know I'm going to win because I'm on Mike's team. In the hilarity of God's grace, in the playground of life, Paul says that God chose you to be on his team. And that Christ takes care of all the past failures, of all the sin, of all that lousiness that would make you an also-ran. He takes you and he puts you on his team so that he can produce a Christian who is utterly holy and blameless, able to be of use for the kingdom of God. I mean, think of that. That before the creation of the world when there was just expanse, when there was nothing, when, when, when there was no earth, no sun, no stars, when there was nothing, God looked into the future and said, I choose you to be on my team. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. Do you see how big our God is? And in love, Paul says, this God, this God who is not confined by past or future, this eternal God who determines all things by the counsel of his will, chose you for his team. We can never get over that. We need a God who grows ever bigger while we grow ever smaller. Do you see how this elevates your identity as a child of God? The guy was never surprised. You were never an afterthought in God's plan. You know, he never woke up one day and said, I can't believe that you joined the kingdom. I never would have thought you'd have been part of the family. No, back in eternity past, he says, I want you on my team. He chose you with purpose 
And he's chosen us to be holy and blameless. And these truths are so revolutionary that we're afraid to believe them. You know, that we back away from them. We say, no, 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 no. Holy and blameless, that's not me. That could never be true of me. And so, so we almost laugh them off as a joke. And we treat them, you know, if someone says you're holy, we, we use holiness to mean sanctimonious. Right? Oh, you're just better than everybody. That, that's not the point. Paul's saying holiness means wholeness. That, that you have been restored and now set apart for useful function in the body of Christ, in the family of God. That's not of your own doing. You don't all of a sudden wake up one day and be holy just because God chose you on his team. You are no better than you were before. Now you're just standing behind your captain and he begins to work in you and you see the life of your captain and you'll be able to learn the cues from your captain and you become more like him. But it's not your holiness. And we treat blameless to be perfection. But we know ourselves, I'm not perfect. To, to call me Perfect. I mean, that's such an insult to the character of God. And to expect perfection, that's an insult to the character of God. What did God do? He chose us, and then all that sin, all that garbage in the past, he knows that we could never redeem it, that we could never somehow present ourselves as blameless to the Father. So what did he do? He sent the Son so that his righteousness could cover our sin, so that our sin, our shame could be lifted from us, forgiven, and then the righteousness of God, the blameness of Christ the Son could be placed upon us. It's not our holiness. It's not our blameless. We are seen through the image of our captain. We are seen through the lens of Jesus. But we need a bigger Jesus so that we see ourselves that way. There's not this, I got to try harder. No, I need more Jesus. God has adopted us into his family. That's the next thing he says. He's adopted us into a family. And adoption means leaving one family and then being joined into another family. It's leaving behind all that was involved in that first family and assuming the name, the identity, the resources, and the history of another family. We were all born in Adam. And so we shared the name of Adam. We shared the identity of Adam. We shared the resources of Adam. And all that led to was sin and shame and certain death. Certain eternal spiritual death. That's what we shared in Adam. That was our family. And then God came along and he chose you. And he says, I choose you to be adopted into my family. And now what do we do? We take on the name of God. He gives us the right to be called sons and daughters of God, right? It doesn't really matter so much what you say about yourself, I'm a child of God. No, it matters what God says about you if you've been given that right to be called a son or daughter of God. And he says, I've done that for you because I chose you. And now I have this identity. And now I get to live this reality. And I have all the resources of Christ at my disposal because God has already given them to me in Christ. They are in the heavenly places right now for me to employ, for me to use. And he says, once I've done this, now that you're in the family, I want you to share about this family. I want you to talk about this family to other people. Now you're my ambassador for this family. And you know how it is if you have kids? 
and they go out and, and you just kind of overhear a conversation and they're saying how much they love mom or dad. They're saying how, how, how much fun they had with you on a, something you did with them. Are they just talking well of you? Do you know what that does to a parent's heart, right? Just this unprompted, just, man, I love being in that family. And your heart just gets big. See, when we go and we share about Jesus and we impact people, this pleases the Father. Because you're in his family. He says, members of my family, now I'm sending you out. And this is what a good family does. We talk well of our family. We talk about our family. We just can't help it, you know. It just comes out. We talk about our kids, our grandkids, our mom and dad. It just comes out. And we just talk about Jesus because we're in his family. It just comes out. And this pleases the Father. God chose you for his team way back then. Some of us, we have a hard time with that. But Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's the only way. And when he calls us by name, and he says, come, stand behind me, you're on my team, then the other part of predestination is also filled, where God kind of appeals to our free will. And Jesus also said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all you who are weary and heavy laden, whosoever will come to me, and I will give you rest. And when the Father draws us, we jump up and we run behind our captain and we say, I'm in. I'm so excited that I'm on your team. Now I can breathe easy. I can rest easy because I'm not trying to fight this losing battle of life. His victory is my victory. And I know I've won because I'm on his team and he always wins. And in that moment, in moving behind him as our captain, this amazing thing happens. We move from death to life, from hopelessness to being hopeful, from having no purpose to living a life full of purpose and meaning, from being dead to being alive, from, being, from losing to being victorious. And it had nothing to do with us. It had nothing to do with us. It all has to do with the captain who chose you to be on his team. See, Jesus must become bigger. We need more Jesus and less of ourselves. And just to give you kind of a, a head start of what's coming up in Ephesians, Paul prays towards the end of chapter 1, and the greediness of this prayer, he says, I want you, saint, you imperfect but yet faithful Christian, I want you to know it all. I want you to have it all. I want you to know the fullness of Jesus. I want you to know all that he's lavished on you. I want you to know that every spiritual blessing is yours now. God didn't give us just a little drop. He didn't give us just a little sip and say, hey, I've got more for you. He gave it all. He's drowning us in, our, in his grace. He wants the church to, to live in this grace now, to swim in his grace, to splash in his grace. He wants us to know that the more is already ours now. He's given us this abundance so that we are flooded by his grace and it just overflows to others. The grace of this infinite God. And you think about it, that he would choose to stoop so low as to choose weak, lousy, failure-prone, sin-ridden humans to be on his team. 
That, 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 that boggles the mind. We can't even hardly make sense of that. Why? Why was that his ultimate plan? Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That this is all happening to the praise of his glorious grace. But in the church, we, we miss it. We, we sometimes miss it. That man's glory will one day fade and only God's glory will remain. That everything of eternal value God is doing. But sometimes in the church we think this. I can just get the right man to lead the church. If I can just get the right pastor over that ministry, he can build the church. He, he can make that ministry grow. He can make it be a success. But just, just find the right guy, he can do it. What does the Bible say? God gives the increase. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That I will do it. That's not our job. Our job is to be faithful, to not throw in the towel. But see, we miss it. And then the church grows, great things happen, and what do we want to do? We want to memorialize the man. And we put plaques up, we do all things. Hey, this man is great. Understand, if anything of eternal value happens in the church, it's always God's doing. It's always God. It would be like if there's this apple tree, you know, and, and you come by it, and there's this beautiful red apple sitting out on a branch and you take it and you take a bite of it and it's the juiciest, it's the sweetest apple that you've ever bitten into in your whole life. And that then you go and say, man, that branch, that's incredible what that branch just produced. I, in fact, I'm going to take that branch with me. I'm going to cut it down. I'm taking that branch with me because this branch is incredible. No, no, we all know that the fruit of it, the reason why this was produced, because the branch was connected to the tree. And that's what Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're not connected to me, you're not producing anything. Everything of eternal value happens because the saints are connected to the vine, are connected to our captain. And you think I'm just talking to y'all, man, pastors mess this up more than anybody because we think we can do it too. We think if I just get the right strategy, if I just put the right things in place, if I just, I can build it. I can, I can, and then what do we do? We assign our worth and our value and our success. We, we even assign like the validity of our calling to this. See, we miss it. We assume God's role, and it's not our role. He will build the church. All I can build by myself is a weed. Okay, I can grow a spiritual weed. That's all I can do by myself. Jesus wants us to understand, Paul wants us to understand that Jesus must become more. It's where he starts. It's his starting point. It's the source of this, that we would know more Jesus, that we would give our attention to the one person in the span of human history who accomplished what no other man could do. This is foundational to what Ephesians is all about, that Jesus must become more and that we must become less. Yet oftentimes, you know how it is, we live on the trails of life, 
And we see evergreen tree after evergreen tree after evergreen tree, circumstance after circumstance after circumstance. And we try harder and harder and harder, and we try our best to live the best lives that we can. But as we do it, you know what creeps in. There's complaining. Ah, oh, this didn't go my way. This happened, whatever. And we complain about stuff. We, we judge other people. Oh, they should be doing that. Why aren't they doing that? And self-pity creeps in. You know, stuff always happens to me. Woe is me. And even the joy, it's all momentary joy. Right? It's just waiting on the next circumstance. I just need something good next. And if I have another good, good circumstance, I can continue to be happy. What Paul is writing to the church, to the, to the saint, to, to that imperfect but never quitting Christian, he's writing to you so that he could take you to the overlook and he could show you a bigger picture of reality so that you can see the full span of what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake anyway so you're not confined just to your small slice of the picture so that we would understand that we were made for more. But in order to get there, we got to move. The starting point is to move from more effort to more Jesus. Heavenly Father, just thinking about your character this morning, your eternality, your omniscience, your omnipresence, just how big you are. And that you would choose us. Way back in eternity past, before there was nothing else, it just, we can't even hardly make sense of it. God, forgive us for when we turn it into a joke, we think that it's our doing, that somehow we're holy or blameless or fit to be picked for your team. We understand that it's all your grace so that in the end, it's all to the praise and glory of your grace alone. All human efforts will fade away so that we will only praise you. God, put that praise on our mouths now. Help us to talk well of the family that we've been adopted into, to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.